From high atop Fibush Media World News Headquarters in Rochester, New York, this is the Top of the Tower podcast. We're brought to you by Shively Labs. Shively Labs is a division of Howell Laboratories. Shively is a proud employee-owned company with over 50 years of expert antenna and filter design and manufacturing. And by Yellowtech for broadcasters, podcasters, and content creators. Yellowtech offers solutions for clean, efficient studios with the Mika mic arms and monitor supports. Clear audio from Yellowtech's IXM recording microphone and USB sound cards, along with its compact mixer, the Intellimix. To learn more, go to yellowtech.com. I'm Scott Feibush, just back from New York City and the uh, conjoined broadcast conventions that take place every year at this time. On the west side of Manhattan, there are two of them that happen at once in the Javits Convention Center. One of them is the NAB New York show. It's the outgrowth of the old CCW SATCON, and it's mostly TV production. There's a little bit of radio in there now, too, but uh, largely TV. I remember the days when it was a whole bunch of satellite trucks and remote production trucks, and, of course, so much of that has slimmed down now, and a lot of what you see in that hall is focused on uh, some more low-budget digital approaches to production, a lot of uh, video podcasting and low-budget video production. So that was going on on one side. On the other side is the Audio Engineering Society convention. That, of course, is a a venerable convention. This is their 147th. They hold these twice a year, once uh, in the States and once somewhere in Europe. I believe they're in Austria next year. Uh, But this convention uh, is also notable for the session tracks that take place downstairs, uh, including the Broadcast Technology Conference that takes place there every year, organized uh, by my friend David Bialik. There were some fascinating sessions there this year, including a great one uh, from the folks at WNYC Public Media talking about the history of WNYC technologically. WNYC Radio is getting ready to celebrate its centennial. That's coming up in 2024. Uh, it is uh, that rare station, a unique station, in fact, that employs its own archivist. That would be Andy Lancet, and he presented uh, a wonderful series of photos, including some vintage material that I had certainly never seen before, documenting WNYC's very early technical history, long wire antennas on top of the municipal building in lower Manhattan in the 1920s. Lots of great stuff, and I'm sure we will be seeing more about WNYC's centennial coming up in the next few years and uh, Reminds me, i got to get Andy on the program at some point. I think it would be fascinating to hear from him about all of the really neat work that he does preserving the histories of WNYC and now of uh, sister station WQXR as well. The New York State Broadcasters Association takes advantage of having all of those broadcasters in town to have its annual luncheon uh, every year at the convention. That took place on Thursday afternoon. It included uh, the induction of uh, several notable new members of the New York State Broadcasters Hall of Fame. Tom Joles, uh, who was uh, part of that legendary news team on WKBW-TV in Buffalo in the 60s and 70s and into the 80s. He became the final member of that team to get inducted, uh, joining uh, his uh, colleagues, Irv and Rick. And, of course, if you're from Buffalo, you need no last names on any of them, Diana Williams, who recently retired uh, from another Channel 7, WABC-TV in New York, was honored for her many years reporting there and, and before that also at uh, yet another Channel 7 in Boston. Uh, Boomer Esiason uh, entered the Hall of Fame for his work uh, on Morning Drive and WFAN in New York City. And Tad and Amy, the morning team at 93Q in Syracuse were inducted as well, and there, there's a little bit of an irony there because the man who is in charge of the New York State Broadcasters Hall of Fame is actually also one of Ted Namey's competitors in Syracuse. Uh, I've been wanting to get Ed Levine on the podcast for a while because there is so much 
that is interesting that he does there in Syracuse. Uh, Galaxy Media, uh, where he serves as founder and president and CEO, uh, is, uh, of course, originally a radio broadcaster. He started out with uh, what's now TK99 and TK105 in Syracuse and has added uh, a couple more FM stations and uh, the whole ESPN radio operation on 2 AMs and translators. He's also uh, just down the road in Utica with radio stations. But these days, what Galaxy does goes so far beyond just broadcast radio. As you'll hear, Ed has gotten very involved in the college sports scene in upstate New York. Uh, He's very, very involved in event production and also in digital media. And it was a pleasure to talk to him about all of those aspects of his business. We've been kind of crossing paths without quite connecting with each other uh, for the last couple of weeks. Uh, First at the radio show in Dallas, uh, you delivered a keynote speech that a lot of people were talking about afterwards, the uh, the, the Ten Commandments of Ed Levine. <laughs> That's correct. Run me, run me through a couple of the, uh, the, the biblical lessons that we learned in Dallas. Well, I, I think, you know, I, uh, I've had a lot of people asking me about the event side of the business. And the, in talking privately to a lot of uh, radio operators, what it all comes down to at the end is um, being able to take a risk, either being, being willing to take a risk if you're an individual that you know is running their own company, or if you're as p- part of a bigger conglomerate, if you're able to take a risk. Um, you know, we we've got a number of events that do very well for us, but they all come with inherent risk, and that's the part of the equation that I think so many people forget about or don't pay attention to until they're actually putting the numbers together, and then they go, oh, I, I can't risk that kind of money. Well, then you can't be doing an event. You know, you can do a little event, and that's fine. But if you want to do something like Taste of Syracuse, um, you've got to be willing to step up to the plate and, and spend the appropriate amount of money to not only do an event, but do, do it professionally and do it properly. And you're really kind of in that small class of, of people that I don't know that you would describe even anymore. You know, would you even describe yourself primarily as a broadcaster? Or are you as much in the events business now as you are in radio? No, I think I would always describe myself as a broadcaster, for sure. You know, um, and, and, and radio is, you know, a backbone of everything we do. But I don't, I don't consider Galaxy a radio company. I, Galaxy is a media company. You know, I mean, Galaxy has a very... A large and successful sports marketing division. And most people know about our event division. Our our digital division is in within. Uh, we created it 15 months ago, and it's outbilling everybody in the Syracuse market. Um, we're going to do darn near a million dollars in our first full year this year on the digital side of things. But that's not as unique because a lot of broadcasters have gotten the message and are are doing uh, well digitally. I think what really separates us is um, the event division. And the sports marketing, um, because that's you know that's why we are we, we just got a, a revenue report for the market, and the Syracuse market un- unfortunately was was down considerably in uh, September, um, but we were up. We were beating the market by ten points, and the reason for that is we have a lot of pro- we have a lot of tools and a lot of programming um, that frankly other the other groups of the market just don't have. And that includes another group in the market, Town Square, that I think probably describes itself as much as being in the events business now, too. And yet, you know, certainly at least in your home market, I mean, nobody else is doing anything like Taste of Syracuse. No, I, I, yeah, and I think Town Square is clearly morphed over the last, you know, two years. They're, I think they would describe themselves first and foremost as a digital. 
you know, they sold off their, their event division. Their view of events was also always different than ours, too. Um, they were doing more centrally-based, gigantic events, you know, or they, they had like a James E. Strait type of circus-type show they were doing around the country. Um, and that's really never been our thing. Our thing has been to concentrate in the two markets we're in primarily. And as a result of that, we've gotten a few events, primarily the wine and chocolate events, that we've been able to scale through um, every city in upstate New York now, and we're opening up the Carolinas. We've got two events. Uh, we've got one in Greensboro we've already done successfully, and we've got another one in Charlotte we're going to be doing. Um, but that's, you know, so our model was always a little different than theirs. But, uh, it, it is tougher when you, don't, when you don't have media in the market. It is tougher to make these things happen. But we've been able to have very good, primarily radio partners in almost all of these other markets. Um, and, and that's really been the backbone of our success in and around the state. I was going to say, you, you were just over here not long ago with, uh, with wine and chocolate over in Rochester. Yep. How does that work? I mean, is, that, is that interesting, being a radio company in one market and then being a partner with a, with a different radio company somewhere else? Yeah, you know, it, it, it is interesting. Uh, most of the folks that um, we're doing business with, I, I know, you know, this business has you know, always been small and gotten smaller significantly over the last few years. So I, I, I've known most of these people for a long, long time. In Binghamton, for instance, we, we deal with WBNG, Bob Kubernakis group there, and I've known Bob for many, many years, and that's, you know, our primary there. But, we'll, you know, we'll use, you know, some of the, you know, of our, you know, of our combatants in the Syracuse market we're doing business with in Albany. We're partnering with iHeart on things, and um, we don't compete with Intercom directly, but we, you know, we partner with Intercom in the Rochester market. Uh, we deal with Cumulus uh, in the Buffalo market. Um, you know, in general, when I can, I try to deal with independent groups, but, you know, there's just not a lot of us independent guys left. So for a broadcaster that's looking at getting into the event business and that is willing to follow your commandment and understand that they're taking a risk getting into it, what are the initial things that, that they should be thinking about? One of the primary tenants, I actually did not include in the, in the commandments because I just ran out of time, frankly. But we always look at it, it, an event. To do an event, it's got to have the three poles, and you've got to have two of the poles. It's got to have either a ticketed gate, sponsorship opportunities, and or a concessions opportunity. And when you look at that, well, almost every event would have sponsorship opportunities, so that's a no-brainer. So you've either then got to have a ticketed gate or you've got to have some ability to have the concession. Now, interestingly enough, virtually none of our events have all three. Our two most successful events, Taste of Syracuse, does not have a gate attached to it. And Lights on the Lake is a holiday event, so it doesn't really have concessions attached to it. In, in other words, you know, beer and alcohol. So, and those events are enormously successful. So you don't need to have all three. And I've never been lucky enough to have all three, but you've got to have two. And what we have found as time has gone on, more and more, it's really hard to make free events work. We did a, uh, you know, Taste of Syracuse is, is, of course, tremendously successful. But to make money on free events, you've got to have 200,000 people show up. <laughs> you know, and that's, uh, that's, that's pretty hard to do. If you're going to do an event, there should be some kind of gate component to it. And as time has gone on, we you know we did a series here, well, it must be 10 or, 10 or 12 years ago in Syracuse, uh, down at the Inner Harbor. We did a 
we had great crowds. We had eight, nine, ten thousand people. And I, I can't remember because I try to block these things out, but I think we lost low six figures over that uh, over that time frame. Um, because part of what's happened is, as the population has aged and consumer tastes have changed, you don't frankly sell as much beer as you used to sell these things. You used to be get the people in and sell them the beer and your money's going to be in the beer. Um, well, those numbers are not anywhere near what they used to be. I think in general, folks are drinking less than they used to drink. You know, it's a combination of not, you know, the DWI laws and being healthier and, and frankly, everybody getting a little older. Um, but the, you know, that used to be get the, get the people in and then sell them the beer and you'll make your money on the beer. That, that's just, that doesn't really work anymore. So more and more when we go into markets, we're, we're doing so with, with a gate and a founded, you know, you can have an event that looks great. I mean, we've had a number of events that have had, you know, 10 or 12 or 14,000 people. They look wonderful. Is it different working upstate, you know, especially with, with the limited outdoor season that we have here versus being down in the Carolinas? Yeah, it's a challenge. I mean, we're, we're working on something right now in the Charlotte market, um, and we're talking about doing something outdoors in late September, early October next year, 2020. And we're talking about doing a similar type of event in Greensboro, North Carolina, in that same time frame. That would not be a conversation I would have in Syracuse. We've, we've learned the hard way. We've tried to do events in the month of September uh, in upstate New York, and it, it's, it's too problematical with the weather. Folks are back to school. It's just hard to get people's attention. So we, we generally stick to between Memorial Day and Labor Day uh, to do our outdoor events in, uh, in this area. And that's why we like areas like the Carolinas, because you're really in a nine- or ten-month season, and we may even you know, try to do some events further south in Florida. Obviously, you've, you've got 12 months there. What you, what you don't really have down there or the Carolinas is you really don't have July, June, July, August. It's just too hot to be doing outdoor events with any, with any degree of certainty there. Indeed. And we should mention, too, before we circle back around to radio, this is, this is really a family business for you now, too, right? Yeah, it is. Um, you know, my wife has technically retired <laughs> from the event business after last year, but uh, she comes back and does uh, special projects, as we call them. Um, she's, you know, very uh, connected. Obviously, both of us are at Syracuse University. So when there's when there's projects up there, you know, everybody knows her and loves her up there. So she usually, you know, gets herself, or I ask her to get involved in that. And uh, she also has a, a great relationship with the, with the uh, city fathers in Utica where we started coming out 30 years ago. And so, uh, you know, I call her the Queen of Utica. She, she does a lot, of, a lot of the stuff that we do in Utica. She kind of oversees that, too. But other than that, you know, Terry Watastic, who's now our chief operating officer, has, has built up the event division with my wife and does a magnificent job on the, on the day-to-day basis. And, you know, Terry really is kind of the secret gem of Galaxy. Um, you know, my name may be at the top, but her name is right with mine. And, and and frankly, the the company would be hard pressed to you know operate like it does without Terry. And that's really a company. I, I want to just kind of digress for a second too. I mean, this is this is really a company. You have a lot of women who have been in in major positions of power there. I'm thinking of uh, of Mimi Griswold, who just recently yeah. stepped back from day to day too. Was that was that something you set out to do intentionally, or just did it just work out that way? Uh, yeah, I you know be, way before I think it was cool. Um, I've always believed in. in women in management. Um, I've, uh, I've owned this business now in various names for almost 30 years, and I've always had 
women in general tend to be more collaborative. Um, I always say when I've got men in management, they they tend to be more concerned about who's in my office with me, meeting with the door shut. Hmm. And, and and women don't care about that kind of thing. Women just want to get the job done. So we have, you know, Terry Wittasek, as I mentioned here in Syracuse, uh, as the chief operating officer. Uh, Marissa Greenler, who is our brand manager for K-Rock, has done a fantastic job with that brand in both Syracuse and Utica. Mimi, of course, is still here running Study 102. Our um, chief revenue officer in Syracuse, who has been unbelievable. She's not even 30 years old yet. Her name is Allison Ryan. Um, she has done a great job. My daughter, Lauren, is involved on the digital side. She's doing a wonderful job based in Charlotte. Stephanie Deshefsky is our one of our chief digital content people based out of Syracuse. And um, I'm, I'm hoping shortly to be announcing a new chief revenue officer for Utica. And if, if that person comes aboard, it'll be another female in, in top management here, too. So um, we, we have a lot of women in the company. What I'm really proud of is we've got a lot of female leadership in this company. And I'm also proud of the fact that uh, while I don't consider myself over the hill by any stretch of the imagination, I'm, I'm still in 10 years, I'll still be younger than Coach Behan is today. Um, I've got the next generation set up of senior managers that are all between, say, 29 and 40. Our chief revenue officer, our chief financial officer, our, our new one is the old guy, and he's 50, you know, which is a lot younger than our, our, his predecessor was. So we, we've got the company poised for a, a great 10-year run here with folks that want to be here for the long term. I have no intention of selling the company, um, and we're, we're operating the business as a as a long-term business now, you know, we, obviously we look quarter to quarter and month to month and year to year, but we're also looking at where do we want to be two, three, and five years from now, too. Excellent. Obviously, one of the big bets that you've made, and you've, you've now made at least two SU references that I've counted so far. So let's let's talk about sports. I'd rather talk about SU than the Yankees right now anyway. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. <laughs> so... Let's talk about the bets that you've made on sports. So you've you've gotten into this long term relationship that, that just recently got extended with yep. SU. And and for people who are listening to the podcast from outside upstate New York, I mean, this is a region that lives and breathes and bleeds orange. How did that get started, and 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 what is that doing for you? It, it really got started with Coach Beheim. Uh, Coach Beheim and I were were business friends before we were even the flagship for Syracuse University. The games were still on WSYR in the 1990s, and I approached uh, a representative of Coach Bayham at the time and said, would he be interested in, can he do a, a report for us on PK99, which at the time was this fledgling classic rock station. And Coach Bayheim had no exclusive with WSYR, and even back then they were too cheap to pay him what he was worth. Um, so, so he said, sure. So he was on with WSYR, and he was on with us. He's, you know, he's an independent agent when he does that kind of stuff. And, and you know, then we did a TV commercial. I remember back in the day, I'd like to find it somewhere where uh, the punchline was, out of the orange took his, his head off, and it was Coach Beheim. <laughs> and he was ye- yelling at somebody. Um, and this is in the 1990s. I, don't, I wish I had that uh, tape. I don't know where it is. But, uh, and, and then, you know, we've you know, become personal friends over the years. Um, and Coach Beheim was instrumental in uh, introducing me to Gerald Gross at the time and uh, getting me in position to, to make a presentation. And I had been told, interestingly enough, by the people at Clear Channel at the time that had had the rights, and then the people at Citadel at the time, as it was called, that had the rights, that the deal that SU was putting out there from, from the company that was then called 
the game. And all of that was true. But I used the getting the right as the foundation, as the credibility to create all this content around it, which was 100% Galaxy content, um, which costs money to do, which has been tremendously successful for us. Most of our money that we make around Syracuse University Athletics is not made during the games, and that's something that would surprise a lot of people. Most of the commercials that they hear during the games are the, uh, the money is being made by our partners at Learfield IMG. We get a little bit of inventory here, but it's we sell everything around the games, um, and most of that inventory is 100% Galaxy. And that's leading. That's going to lead us to an announcement, and I'll just tease it a little bit right now, that we're going to be making with Syracuse University two weeks from today about a new venture that we're doing together that will involve a new medium for Galaxy and for Syracuse University. And uh, I had dinner with John Wildpack last night and, and his staff, and uh, we are all very, very excited about it. It's, it's, it's really the new frontier. We're on the front end of it. And um, it's going to be very exciting. It's going to be great for Syracuse University. We're going to have to get you back on to talk about it when it uh, when it comes yeah. on. It's, so, it's going to be a pretty big story when it breaks. So, and you're able to use that obviously to promote the image then, you know, of, of TK99 and of your ESPN stations as being the Syracuse sports uh, stations in town, and, and clearly that works in a market with a school and a team that they're so obsessed with. Does that translate? Could you do that in other markets? Oh, I, I think other people could do it. I was looking at a market that will remain nameless right now, and the the, the flagship station of that market was the company was for sale. And uh, I went down and I met with the entrepreneur that owned it. And uh, unfortunately, I got there you know a couple of days too late. They'd already kind of had a. a I, I was sort of the the backup plan B. Um, but one of the reasons why I was the, really the main reason I was most interested in is that. They were the flagship for a major college, uh, major university, certainly a major football program. And they were basically running the inventory from Learfield IMG and doing nothing around it. And I said to this person, and I, I named a couple of Hall of Fame players from this college program, I said, do you do anything with it? I mentioned the guy's name. And, and he looked at me and said, no, you, we can do that? And it was like, it was like you know, the, the light bulb kind of went on, but... You know, they just took what was out there, and uh, again, you've got to be willing to take a risk. I mean, we spend we spend a small fortune on you know when you look at Coach Beheim's bench, Coach Beheim, Jerry McNamara, Red Autry, Alan Griffin are all on our payroll. Coach Babers, his offensive coordinator, his defensive coordinator, all on our payroll. You know, Coach Q on our payroll, Coach Desco on our payroll. You know, um, yes, we have a great relationship with the university, but, it's, you know, and, and, yeah, we are personal friends with almost all these guys. But it's still, it all started with a business relationship, you know. Um, and, and, that, and to do that, you've got to be willing to spend money, and you've got to be willing to take the chance that you can sell that, that spot for more than you're paying, you know, the guys that are doing it. Um, and that was, and that was the that was the thesis behind what we did all those years ago, and it's, it's proven to be pretty darn successful. And of course, at least in the case of Coach Beheim, he's not just on the payroll; he also now has equity in the place. No, he does. Yeah, no, he's yeah, he's you know, he wasn't only a fan of the company; <laughs> he's now an owner. Um, so, you know, it's like the guy, the old guy, the, uh, 
with a razor uh, commercial. But he'll uh, say, yeah, big deal. I only own 3%, which is when I introduced him as an owner. So I said, here's my partner. Yeah, he goes, yeah, big deal. I own 3%. But on the other hand, he's not afraid to tell me that. He thinks I should be charging for taste of Syracuse, and I'm leaving a lot of money on, on the floor by doing that. So, um, and I and I, I responded to him, I think you should go man-to-man sometimes. <laughs> you know, and he just, he just looked at me. So, you know, we each, we each have our, 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 our parts that we stick to. But he, in all seriousness, though, he's, He's been a, a, a wonderful ally. Um, he's been somebody I could always count on, and um, he's he's helped me and helped this business in in numerous different ways. Well, I should I should say my dad and my sister are both Syracuse alumni, and so he is <laughs> he is as iconic as it gets in uh, in my household too. So. Well, I, and we've got it's funny you say that we've got in in, uh, in just about an hour. I'm doing an appearance with him for sponsors and advertisers for the season, so I will. Uh, I would tell them that, 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 that your family are big fans, as will everybody in the Green League. Excellent. So let's talk about radio a little bit, because we've we've kind of worked our way around it. So you, you're, you're, you're in this for the long haul. The business has a 10-year plan. Where now does broadcast radio and the programming that you're doing on, on K-Rock and on Sunny and on TK and all that fit into it? Well, I think it's all it's a central part of what I call the media ecosystem. It's not like it was 20 years ago where it was the entire ecosystem. I mean, we still, you know, you see all the stats, 92, 93% of people listening. But I think you'd have to be living in a time warp to think that, you know, just local radio, local broadcast radio, I hate the word terrestrial, but, you know, local broadcast radio has the same impact that it had 20, 25 years ago. Not necessarily coming over, you know, 99.5 FM. But when you look at all the ways we can reach people now and you take it as a whole, I would argue that it has the same or greater uh, impact that it had 20 or 30 years ago, too. Uh, when I was a program director in the 80s and 90s, early 90s, I used to say, um, I'm in charge of everything coming out of the speakers. We don't use the term program director anymore at Galaxy. We use the term brand manager. And there's a reason for that because that person, you know, whether it's, you know, Mimi or Marissa Greenler or Alex Khan on TK99, Paulie Stabile on ESPN. Those people are responsible for everything associated with the brand in all the ways that it's consumed. That's, that's a bigger job. You know, I, I used to be concerned that I was playing the right Boston song into the right foreigner song. That, that just gets you a ticket into the arena now. But becoming successful past that is, much, is a much more complicated business. Than that. And I think it's very hard now. If you think about it for a second, even in the Syracuse market, I can't tell you the last radio station that signed on the air in Syracuse and, and, and had a very significant impact. You know, it, it's just really hard to do. It's been it's certainly a number of years. It's, it's very hard to do it where back in the old days, you know, if you sign a new format on, it might not work long term. But for six months or a year, you know, if you signed your jam and oldie station on, it, you know, it would get a rating. It, it might disappear in 18 months, but it would get an impact. I mean, now it just seems really tough because there's so much noise out there, and there's so much more choice for the consumer. Um, it, it, it's just hard. you know. So I, I used to be very bullish and think that I could find a station on in the market and, you know, I'm not saying go to number one, but, you know, get a, get a reasonable rating period in a, in a certain period of time. And I don't think that anymore, and that's why, you know, we have not, I'm trying to think out loud. The last time I changed the format in Syracuse, 
and it might have been when we changed es when we changed music your life on 1200 to espn and that had to be uh, 10 years ago 10 or whenever i got the franchise from uh Citadel, 10 or 12 years ago um because i just don't think you, you can it's very hard to have an impact with a new station in a, in a new market if you look across the country you know you see every now and then a station will have a, a big debut but it's 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 very rare to see it now. And I think that's part of it is consumer has so many choices and and radio is part of the ecosystem. It has a role in the ecosystem, but it's not the role that it had 20 or 25 years ago. Agreed. I mean, I gauge that just by looking around the state fair when I go every year. And you know, it used to be every single signal that was on the air in Syracuse. They had a big booth. They were out there handing out stickers. I mean, I saw, yeah. you know, I saw you guys there this year, but it was it was clearly not, you know, the big deal yeah. that it was. No, the state fair is something we always wrestle with because, you know, now we have so many events that we own that we're, you know we're not competing with ninety three Q at it. Um, so it's like you know, and when you go to the fair, they get something, and they don't know whether they got it from you or they got it from B one hundred four. They it's just, it's really hard to stand out there. I've gone to the fair and spent a fortune, and I've gone to the fair and done very little, if anything. And when the ratings came out and the time frame after that, I, I couldn't point to a difference one way or another. Um, so we, we tend to, I mean, we have a presence there just because I just think out of muscle memory we do. Um, but we tend to want to do things where it's, you know, we do so many events now that we own them. I don't have to worry about you know, the competing radio station showing up. You know, I, I tend to want to just sort of stick to our own stuff. Sure. I want to turn, too, to the other event where we kind of briefly almost crossed paths this past week in New York because uh, through your involvement with New York State Broadcasters, you were emceeing the uh, the award ceremony there, the luncheon at the Javits sure. Center. That was that was quite a crowd of, uh, of, of all-star Hall of Fame uh, recognition. Uh, all-star yeah, Hall of Fame inductees this year. That's the word I'm looking for. As I said to somebody, it was a big room. It was a very big room, no doubt about it. Um, and it included, interestingly enough, a couple of your big competitors there in Syracuse. I thought that was that was a neat irony. Yeah, no, and that and that was not an accident. Um, you know, I'm the chairman of the New York State Broadcasters, Broadcasters Hall of Fame, and so I oversee the committee. And um, Ted and Amy's name was submitted. And I think that people at that station thought that, you know, that there was no way that that, that would happen. Um, but it had been, you know, we have a lot of criteria. It's, I kind of, it's like Noah's Ark. You've got to have enough TV and enough radio, enough downstate, enough upstate. If you have too much, you know, when's the last time somebody from Syracuse got in, even if it was television, you know, um, you've got to be mindful of all that stuff. But it's been a while since somebody from Syracuse was in. You know, when you look at their credentials, not only have they been on the radio for 30 years, but the thing that separates, I mean, you, every market has people that have been on the radio 30 years, but they're still on the radio and they're still at the top of the ratings game 30 years later. And that's the difference between Ted and Amy and, and other folks that, you know, maybe, you know, a guy says, you know, I've been on the radio 45 years in, you know, XYZ town. And, and, and I respect that. I respect the work. But, you know, they're on a small AM that, you know, nobody really hears. Um, it's, this is not the hall of longevity, you know. This is the hall of fame. This is the hall of, you know, not just surviving, but the hall of doing meaningful work. And and I thought they passed every test, so I, I was happy and proud to put them in. And then Tom Joel's out of Buffalo. You know, speaking of yeah. 
a fellow upstater. Yep. That, uh, he certainly was Tom a legend Jones. in that market. Absolutely. Tom Jones, for you know his body of work over many, many years, he was the last person from the Eyewitness News team that was not put in there. Diana Williams from Channel 7 in New York, who was, you know, for almost 30 years, you know, a top-rated anchor in the toughest market in America. Um, you know, again, very, very deserving folks to be to be put into that hall. I mean, it's tough because there's there's other people in Syracuse I'd like to see get in there, but you know, I, I you know now it'll have to be probably a couple of years because of the fact that we just had somebody from Syracuse in, and then we've got to balance television, radio. Upstate, downstate, it's 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 very hard because we're running out of room at the Newhouse School. So I've been told I, I can't put more than like four people in a year, um, and it, you know, it, it's hard. I mean, there's there's a number of very well known New York folks that had their names submitted this year. That for you know we just thought Diana Williams because she had just retired. Um, it was a lot of fanfare that it was appropriate for her this year. But there's there's an all star crew. I can go for the next 10 years and put legitimate people in there. And, you know, the question would be, why aren't they? For instance, next Monday, I'm going to uh, the Syracuse Sports Hall of Fame to see my friend Floyd Little get inducted. Floyd Little's getting inducted now. I, I, I'm, my attitude is, if Floyd Little's just getting inducted now, who the hell's in this thing? <laughs> I mean, you know, who, who do you put in before Floyd Little? You know, and it's just, but I think they've got some of the same issues, you know. You know, you've got a lot of different components in the series. It's not just Syracuse University, you know. So that, so I'm dealing with those same type of issues that, you know, I could tell you people. I'm not going to tell you that. I could tell you legendary broadcasters from New York State that are not in the Hall of Fame simply because we haven't figured out a way to crowbar them in yet. <laughs> you know, um, and that's that's an ongoing discussion that we have. Um, you know, we we put a lot of folks in the first two years. But then we've been, we've been mindful. We don't want it to become, no offense to those guys, but we don't want it to become the Boxing Hall of Fame in Catastota where you've got, you know, just, you know, everybody that won a, you know, a middleweight title from one of the three organizations seems to get in there every year. You know, I think they, you know, that's what happens when you put too many people in. So we want to be discreet. You know, I even have issues with the Baseball Hall of Fame. I, I think there's players that were very good players that got into the Baseball Hall of Fame. I don't know that they're Hall of Famers, though. You know, so we're we're trying we're trying to keep we're trying to keep the standards really really high and it's it's difficult. You could you could argue that all day for sure. I've got names here in Rochester that you know I could argue for a week belong in there, and I'm sure there are there are lots of reasons why they have or haven't been yet. So yeah. real quickly, I know you've you've got to you got to go and uh, and and hang yeah. out with Coach Bam, but uh, we we kind of touched on digital a little bit, and and obviously yep. that's the direction that a lot of this is going in. Does there come a point where the digital business for a lot of people becomes something that then doesn't even really need radio anymore, or is there still an argument to be made that the two media really still work well together better than they work apart? Oh, I, I, I really fervently believe that because remember, when I go into these other markets, I'm I'm an, an event promoter, and I've tried it with using just digital, and I will tell you, I, I haven't had the success that uh, I've wanted with it too. Um, you need the legacy media, whether it's over-the-air television or or broadcast radio. Um, I, I've not, I have not seen just digital working well for me as an event person. So when we go out to market, now about fifty percent of our digital business is digital only. But when we talk to folks, we always 
advocate for both. We don't try to shove. If, if they only want digital and they don't want radio, then fine. We're not going to we're not going to put them somewhere they don't want to be. But I, I really believe that that big bullhorn of radio, combined with the specificity that digital can deliver, that's a great combination. But you need the bullhorn. It does still matter, and you've got uh, you've got some good bullhorns there. And your yep. stations, by and large, are, are, are locally programmed and have local people yep. on them. What's what's the value to that in a market where you look across town, like in an iHeart, for instance, and there are almost no local air shifts on their stations anymore? Yeah. No, I, I mean, you know, uh, that, that, that's what we're hanging our hat on. You know, we've been doing it for a long time. It wasn't when we said we were locally owned and operated 15 years ago. I, I'm not sure that people cared. It was like, yeah, who cares? Um, now it seems to resonate differently, too. You know, uh, 15, 20 years ago, people might have wanted to work for a clear channel back then or a Citadel back then rather than a company like mine um, because they thought it was, you know, this wonderful opportunity. They could move anywhere around the country. Well, the reality of that myth has hit home now. And and more and more we're able to find the, the true grade-A players, and, and I would say everybody on our management, is you know, these are the top in their game, and that only helps the performance even better. I mean, we've got a number of people that have been here over a decade, um, not because they can't go somewhere else. They could go anywhere they wanted to go, but they like working here because we're running this as a responsible business. Not, you know, we're not trying to make the regional vice president like us tomorrow, so his boss likes them. So, you know, they survive the day. Uh, what I tell our staff is. The guys at the other stations, other clusters in the market, they're trying to survive the day. They're trying to get by the day, keep their head down, not get fired. We're actually trying to score touchdowns. You know, we're not trying to survive the day. We're trying to win the game. Um, and and that's, that, that's the difference between us and I think everybody else in a nutshell. Well, and it shows. I was in there. Uh, Gomez was, was showing me around. I finally got to see your studios a few months ago. And yeah. everybody that I, that I talked to seemed to be really happy to be there. And you don't see that always in radio. Yeah, that, it breaks my heart when I hear, I mean, on one hand, I'm very proud when I hear that from people, and I thank you for saying that, but it, it breaks my heart that people go into these other places and they say, you just walk in, and it's just, it's like walking into a morgue. Um, and, but, you know, the, a, a lot of really good radio people have had the stuffing beat out of them, have had the soul beat out of them, um, and it's very distressing. You know, I'm not, I don't, I don't take, uh, I don't take joy in that. That doesn't, that doesn't make me happy. But, you know, in my own little world here, I've decided for the time left I have on this earth as a functioning adult, I want to try to be a, 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 a haven for really good broadcasters that want to apply their craft and serve the community and do a great job and make a really good living. And, and that's that's what I want to do. You can send your resumes to 235 Walton Street, Syracuse, <laughs> New York. <laughs> Ed Levine, thank you so much for your time. Looking forward to hearing what you're ready to announce next. We'll have to have you back on to talk about it again. Thanks, Scott. I appreciate you having me on. So my thanks to Ed Levine for taking time to talk to us, and I really want to know what this new uh, digital sports announcement that he's going to be making is, and uh, look forward to having him back on the podcast, perhaps to talk about that, too, sometime soon. The Top of the Tower podcast is brought to you by Yellow Tech. For broadcasters, podcasters, and content creators, Yellow Tech offers solutions for clean, efficient studios with the Mika mic arms and monitor supports, Clear audio from Yellow Tech's IXM recording microphone and USB sound cards, along with its compact mixer, the Intellimix. To learn more, go to yellowtech.com. 
and by Shively Labs. Shively Labs is a division of Howell Laboratories. Shively is a proud employee-owned company with over 50 years of expert antenna and filter design and manufacturing. We'll be back next week with another exciting uh, upstate New York sort of based uh, interview here on the Top of the Tower podcast. But Steve Hausman, in addition to his many years doing mornings at WBEE here in Rochester, uh, has a long history in Boston, too, at uh, WHDH and WCOZ, among others. And we'll be talking to him about that as well. So join us again right back here next week for another Top of the Tower podcast. I'm Scott Feibusch. Thanks for listening.